Hello, folks, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Meet Me in the Middle. Uh, this podcast is going to dive into a lot of uh, polarizing topics in our electoral system right now. At the time of this recording, it is uh, September uh, 2022, and we are nearing a midterm election that's shaping up to be one like no other. Uh, so there's a lot of factors in play here. We're not going to get into all of that, but we're going to tackle more broader concepts in this podcast. Today's episode is going to focus on political polarization and finding uh, solutions to that problem and understanding a lot of the roots and perspectives on that problem. So just a little bit of an overview on what polarization is more so in the modern state. We we are currently in a, in a state in our country where there's a lot of division, where uh, we're separated on racial lines, political lines, religious lines, and it's hard to identify if you're our countrymen as fellow Americans. Uh, back in the day of the uh, 1940s, 50s, uh, we were under uh, the uh, New Deal party system uh, in which uh, politicians like uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and all, this, all of those sorts agreed on uh, a lot of uh, political ideas. The debates of that day were more so what the role of uh, government in terms of free enterprise and regulation or business uh, versus labor or whether they have more government programs or not. So there was a lot of simplicity and compromise because this this was all this was all easier because the con- the Congress people all interacted with each other more so. And then in the 90s, this changed when uh, Speaker uh, of the House Newt Gingrich got power um, during the uh, Republican Revolution of 1994 when they sweep the midterm election. Speaker Gingrich at the time uh, changed policy in which congressmen were required to go home in any breaks or recesses, uh, which would then limit the amount of cooperation and collaboration that they would normally do with each other. Uh, Having it be less likely that you know your fellow congressman, your fellow legislator. So that also exasperated by the rise of mainstream media in terms of uh, news and all, and then the decentralization of the internet that came in the uh, late uh, 2010s, we now have a very different political state than we did in the 1940s and 50s. Nowadays, uh, we're more divided on worldview, whether our outlook on race is different, gender equality is, uh, who knows what, law and order, you already know of that one. Uh, Sexual orientation, immigration, and terrorism are all polarizing topics in our society. So, we are in this state in 2022, and we are more more divided than we have been in recent times. And our goal today is to find common ground solutions as not only not only Christians, but also as fellow Americans. So to do that today, I have my uh, dear friend uh, Corbin Wisniewski on for me today. He is an alumni of the Moody Bible Institute. So Corbin, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our uh, audience here? For this first episode. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me on, Samuel. Yeah, like he said, my name is Corbin Wisniewski. I graduated in 2017 with a pastoral studies degree and a children's ministry minor. I went to Grand Rapids Theological Seminary to study for an MDiv and graduated in, I think, 2021. It's already so far ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I came back here to the city and and now an employed at Moody Church, a part of their parachurch ministry, Moody Church Media, and that's how we know each other. Yes, him and I uh, are very good friends. Uh, so, Corbin, I have you on to talk about uh, polarization. Uh, so, why don't we start off 
When you look at the state of the country today, what do you see? What worries you? What gives you hope? And what do you think absolutely needs to change? Yeah, so I think what worries me the most is the lack of social glue holding us all together. So we've had talks with a couple other people in our office. I myself think that culture is what unites a country, period. Uh, everything else can be tacked onto that, but the basic rules of how we think of family, how we think of how we should treat each other, how we think of uh, everything else, those you know unspoken rules are really kind of what hold us together as a society. It makes us a team versus a bunch of people who live together geographically. And you can see that through how images and rituals are used. And in talking about this, I always think of New Coke, which you and I are too young to have been a part of. But in the 80s, right, Coca-Cola sales were going down. They have a new formula for Coke. They say, hey, we've got New Coke. The country almost exploded. Hyperbole, yes, but it was a lot bigger deal than it should have been for a soft drink. And why is that? Because Coca-Cola did a very good job early on gluing themselves to America as a part of classic Americana. A glass bottle of Coca-Cola is almost as American as baseball and apple pie. And so when they changed the formula, in a way, it's kind of like America was changing. Or at least that's what some people perceived. And even today, right now, like the symbols that we should have that hold us together, the flag, well, do you kneel for the flag? Do you stand for the flag? Can you burn the flag? Should you not burn the flag? Should you even say that you pledge allegiance to the flag? Now, believers themselves probably shouldn't be doing that first and foremost. We're Christians, not uh, citizens of any country as our first adjective. But for the rest of the citizens of this country, you would hope that they would care enough about their country to say, I'm for my country first and for any other country second, if at all. And so I think that's what worries me is that we don't have any glue holding us together anymore. And so with that case, when we come into politics, I can't even have my hand open to you ready for a handshake because you are completely other to me. Everyone's completely other to me. We don't have the culture binding us together. I want to take that point you just talked about and extrapolate that a little further. Okay. You talked about citizens, uh, Christians, not necessarily uh pledging allegiance to a country and all that. So where do you have the fine line between a, a, a toxic view on uh, patriotism and more so what a Christian should have as a member of this uh, country? I'm not sure I like the idea, the the term toxic, uh, due to how it's been stapled on to like, I'm thinking mostly of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and that whole attack on men, which was honestly, men were acting like men and we're all sinners, right? So women are not perfect, men are not perfect. Uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus was the only one, but men were doing classically masculine things and getting told not to do that. Now, lo and behold, we have a lot of fem effeminate men and women don't like that either. So the, the whole toxicity thing has been like stapled on as an adjective to something to make it bad. Um, you know, I don't have the eloquent answer to that question, but I don't need to because, uh, St. Augustine wrote one of his uh, better writings, at least more popular, uh, City of God. He talks about how there's the city of the world and then there's God's city itself, not literally, but he's talking about where the believer is oriented. And so we should be uh, Hebrews 11 oriented. You know, Abraham looks forward to that promise, the city. He didn't get to see it himself. We don't get to see it yet either. We all will when the end of Revelation happens. 
But until then, we are first and foremost kingdom of Christ oriented. Now, can I have a barbecue on July 4th? I hope so. It's my birthday. And I can certainly say I pledge allegiance. But we also got to remember, right, first and foremost, if my allegiance to my country should cause me to sin against God, then that needs to be cut off. Because ultimately, I'm, I'm a slave to Christ, right? Paul says in Romans 6, you're, you're always a slave, period, whether you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. And so now that he's bought me, I am to live for him. And so I think believers, we really need to tread that line. Patriotism's not bad. And you probably would be hard-pressed to find a, as you said, toxic patriotism. That would be more, I would guess, a Christian nationalist mm -hmm. kind of thing. And you've, you know you've seen that, like the whole God bless America, America is God's chosen America nation. America is the Christ. I, you know... I might be completely wrong in this. I could have sworn in Revelation there is at one point a, a third of the world that's destroyed um, by fire prior to the rest of the – in the process of everything else happening. I would not be surprised if the U.S. was that third. Um, our major cities, Chicago, where we are right now, New York, uh, maybe Austin, California, there's sin everywhere – but some of these major cities where tons of people gather, there's a lot of crime and a lot of bad stuff. What Sodom and Gomorrah did doesn't sound that bad compared to a lot of the stuff that's going on today. And they were destroyed with hail, and hail fire, and brimstone. Why do we think that uh, we're God's chosen people, or at least his chosen nation? Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a chosen nation. The church is a spiritual body. So I guess that's what I, what I mean. The believer should be focused first and foremost on God, regardless of where they live. Um, you know, right now we're we're at, at the time of this recording, Russia and Ukraine are still fighting. Believers in Russia and believers in Ukraine should be able to come together in unity by the very fact that they are believers in Jesus Christ and they believe that he will return and restore all things. That doesn't mean that will be easy because, you know, where I was born first and foremost, a part of my country, a part of my skin color, a part of my class, I was brought into this identity as a believer um, and we don't have much of a spiritual connection to the spiritual world we're embodied spirits i see things through my body but our hope isn't in our country or in our money it's in christ very well put very well put corbin there's just a lot going on in our country a lot of well i'll be blunt there's a lot of idols as christians in our country that we hold to the flag being one of them, that does hamper our ability to face people who disagree with with that same veneration of a national symbol that we do. Um, at the end of the day, people forget Colin Kaepernick professes faith. He says he's a Christian, yet everyone was very upset at him for dealing for the flag. That gets, that gets into an other whole very gray territory on respecting the flag and all that. I won't get into that. But at the end of the day, there's a bigger glue that guides us. I've heard some people say mix things either way. You think about it in lore for things or even, I guess, uh, we have an understanding that when a person is before a king or a monarch, period, you kneel before them, right? Truly in the U.S., maybe we didn't do that, but the whole idea of kneeling for the flag isn't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. I don't know his heart. I think personally he was not respecting it, but again, I don't know his heart. I don't think that itself, the kneeling, should be seen as disrespectful. I'm also, though, of the opinion that the flag, since it represents freedom itself, right, even for other countries, 
which is pretty interesting. Freedom of speech um, being on the top of that list. I think you should be able to burn the flag uh, because the what better show of freedom than to be able to destroy the symbol that represents that freedom? Is that disrespectful? For sure it is. But the flag itself does represent that. And I, I think... I think you could find some soldiers who have served their country who fought for that right who would say like, yeah, I, I hate that you did that, but I, I fought for your right for freedom and the flag does represent that. Now, granted, that's just two cents itself. There's probably just as many soldiers who would say, no, that's disrespectful. We should honor the flag. But then maybe we have a question of how much are we, uh, what pedestal are we putting it on? That also gets into your whole point of having a common culture as well. If your main national icon that transcends most divides, uh, us being our citizenship, uh, citizens of the United States, if our symbol is ambiguous to us in whether we honor it or disrespect it, then you have the problem of having a very divided culture. As you see right now, we're the Republicans and Democrats, uh, the two major parties at, the t- at this time, um, their problem is they don't live with each other anymore. Uh, back then, back in the day, look at any electoral map prior to uh, Bill Clinton's election in '92. A lot of the, a lot of the states that f- flipped uh, red also flipped blue in previous elections. Look at the map for uh, President Nixon's uh, victory in uh, in the '70s. Uh, a lot of that map went red, uh, except Minnesota. Uh, but the the div- the Republicans and Democrats were living amongst each other. More states were swing states. The views were more competitive instead of uh, right now you have people campaigning to be president of uh, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Florida, Georgia sometimes, uh, and, and all of the like. And most of the Midwest, you have people who have no ties to their uh, – to, to a lot of – to be blunt, flyover country or stuff that's forgettable. So naturally, you're going to market your campaigns to uh, the people who will actually get you a victory. So, Corbin, what would you say in terms of people who are alienated from uh, from politics and all that? What would you say uh, the reasoning for alienation is? First, I question if anyone is alienated these days. Um, the Prius itself is a political icon, right? You... If you drive a Prius, you're probably a this, this, you believe in this and like climate change. If you drive a pickup truck, you're probably a this, this and hate the planet. Why can't you have just liked that vehicle? Um, You know, everything is political right now. Shoot. I think one of the biggest things that encapsulates that is Gillette in what I would think is a very dumb marketing ploy several years ago made like a two minute long uh, ad talking about toxic masculinity. Now, Gillette's a razor company, right? So who does more shaving of their face, men or women? It seems really silly to tell your whole base that you would like to get money from, you're absolutely the worst. The main problem with companies trying to be the arbiters of morality is these same companies benefit from profit. So the problem and critique that I have capitalist uh, businesses are wanting to legislate our morality. They're not giving the opportunity to create something more. They're telling men 
change yourselves, but a lot of men don't even know what that even means. There's no calling to something greater, and the people who should be uh, guiding us to a higher standard aren't doing it, or we're not near them enough. You have social media bring a more uh, the, the the sensational, the fun, which is all good and fun at, at times, but oftentimes we get drowned in the uh, the bread and circuses of our own society <laughs> that we often cannot reflect onto ourselves and think. Is there something I can be doing better? How can I be a more honorable person? And naturally, as a Christian, uh, you would have the the Holy Spirit and the Bible and ideally, hopefully, your pastor to guide you to that call to adventure, to be more like Christ, to be uh, reconciled to him, to grow in holiness and grow in sanctification. But instead in, instead of having the uh, arbiters of morality be in our community, people we know, Corporations, identity politics. You you mentioned at the start right here, uh, starting in the '90s. That's where we're left off. Everything is political. Mm-hmm. So I can't just play a video game anymore or read a book. It says something about my politics, whether right or wrong. And so I, I question if anyone is actually politically alienated. But as for, to the other side of that point, the individuals who maybe are in the states that have very few electoral votes kind of things or you know i don't remember them really coming to indiana that much my my state is solidly one color uh, you usually see ohio michigan and wisconsin get a lot of love in florida although i bet in future elections florida will stay red probably so i don't think florida's gonna get much love anymore. as long as the boomers live, texas, Florida will bleed red. texas well the uh, the hispanic vote was was pretty for trump as well and you know uh, donald trump is not the same as any other Republican candidate, maybe Ron DeSantis, maybe. Um, and if a Republican comes up who isn't populist, Florida might not care about that. But uh, Austin is is blueing Texas. So maybe uh, Florida and Texas have a bit of a switcheroo there. Um, it's probably really, really frustrating for those people who feel alienated, who never have a presidential candidate come and campaign for them because you're a, a guaranteed vote. But in a sense, I think everyone feels that. Um, I was talking with one of our friends about what Joe Biden had said uh, with the whole, if you, don't, if you don't know whether you're voting for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Good old dark Brandon. Well, thank you. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, no group of people are a monolith. And there are people in the black community who are probably Democrats. There are people in the black community who are probably Republicans. We're not all clones of each other. It's really arrogant to say that this demographic must and will vote for this candidate, and we don't have to do anything. On that, there's there's a big problem that we got where we naturally, as individuals, we like to sort people into categories. So you see somebody, a person of color walking in Chicago, you're probably going to assume they're a, they're a Democrat. You go out to rural Montana, you see a bunch of people with a, with a Guns, God, and country, and you probably think they're going to be um, right-wing Republicans. The problem is we don't embrace the outliers of certain demographics. We're all we all have independent thoughts, so we naturally like to sort. And when we sort, we're more we're more likely to not initiate uh, conversations or view them as our equals. So well, there's this, this thing that the New York Times did closer to the uh, 2020 election. They had a thing uh, where they were asking their uh, readers. Can you guess if this fridge belongs to a Biden voter or a Trump voter? <laughs> uh, so uh, people would guess based on the products they had, if they had more uh, fancy, uh, what's it called, kombucha, whatever that is, 
uh, and all that, people tend 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 to think they were more democratic, or orders. like an alternative milk, like soy or almond. Yes, mm-hmm. although oat milk is very nice. But the result of the study were most people at the end of this study, you had a fifty fifty chance of being right. So at that point, the results were kind of kind of meaningless. There was it was it was a yes or no. You're usually wrong. More times than not. So there weren't necessarily any key indicators of whether uh, the voter would be a Trump voter or a, or a Biden voter or whoever we got running next uh, election, although it'll probably be the same two people. Um, but we will see. Well, we we can talk a little bit about the you mentioned the media corporations, and I think they're a large they're a fair part of why we're so polarized today. Um, you know, you look at. Didn't see him myself, but Walter Cronkite at the end of the day would say, and that's how it was. Um, I don't think I think it's maybe a little naive of us to think that news became biased after a certain point. It's probably more fair to say news has always been biased. Everyone is biased, truthfully. People have always been biased. It's just a matter of how biased are you and how aware of it you are. And so with the Internet, we've been able to see just how biased individual news publications are. But it seems like since 2014, uh, during Obama's second term, we realized, hmm, panic and hysteria gets a lot of clicks and that brings us money. And so we started to see more and more our media companies, instead of telling us the news, told us a skewed version of doom and gloom. Because a panicked people want to know what's going on, and that will make you more money. Biases in media did actually have a notable change in the uh, 1990s. Uh, there was a change in Congress when Speaker Gingrich was around on something called the Fairness Doctrine, which which prohibited news organizations from being sensational and all that. At the time, you had Rupert Murdoch also starting up Fox News, uh, the uh, paragon of Eve of uh, the paragon of conservative news, and it was the beginning of a decentralization from trusted mainstream sources to to where we are now, where we have more independent, more independent, smaller media. Uh, so this fairness doctrine, when it was repealed, uh, allowed corporations like Fox News to be able to uh, get away with a little bit more uh, sensationalized headlines, and subsequently they made more money. Everyone else wanted to make the money, so the the market forces forced everyone else to become more sensational. I think it was it was either Plato or Aristotle in I think the Republic who kind of argues about the smallest family unit being a microcosm of society. I might have completely messed that up. I apologize any listeners, please roast me. Even if that's wrong, we do see In Ephesians 5 and 6, the husbands and wives' instructions, as well as fathers and mothers to their children and children to their parents' instructions. Commentators call that the household codes. Paul is basically, again, following on that same trend. What's the smallest group of people that you can talk about that could be extrapolated larger to a society? Well, it's a family right? If you get the family right, then you can get other families right. And then a bunch of families is a village. A bunch of villages, you see where I'm going. And so the family is, in theory, the smallest unit that you can talk about for if you, if you fix that or get that good, everything else can follow from there. Well, we've got, we've got a, a, from a follow-up of uh, media, parents are uh, not raising their kids, the iPad 
or the cell phone is raising the kid. I myself did not have a phone till I was 17. I didn't need one. I was homeschooled. But I've seen I've seen kids at restaurants. They're using either mommy and daddy's phone or their maybe it's their own. I don't know. But they're like six or seven on the phone while everyone's eating, not talking to their family. That is valuable social cue learning time. And they're missing out on that. Their mind is going to be wired differently as a result of looking at the screen so much. And I, I grew up playing video games. I played them a lot. I love video games. But I still, when I was out and about, I talked with people and I was raised by my parents, not by TV or by a screen. And so we have parents doing a disservice to their children, but that's the, we have people being politicized by everything from the get-go, like our games, uh, the shows that we watch. Um, Arthur had, you know, Arthur the Aardvark on PBS became political a few years ago. The show is actually over now after how many seasons of being in the third grade. They finally graduated. Good for them. But the they they actually talked about some political issues that one side of the aisle would not have agreed with. And so by nature, they became political. Sesame Street has done the same thing. Um, if I can't trust my kid to sit in front of a TV for something well, that t- that makes it harder on me as a parent, which is totally fine. But for the parents who think, oh, well, Sesame Street, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, congratulations. Your kid is much more leaning towards one side or the other. Whether it's good or bad in your mind, you would still hope that a children's program show would teach them their ABCs, not whether Stalin was a good guy or bad guy. Yes. A lot of this... Uh... This parenting issue is also exasperated by the fact our economy requires both parents to work. Wages haven't risen in proportion to inflation since the 70s, and prices have only gone up. We have embraced an ideology of of socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor uh, to where we support these big businesses and we treat them as too big to fail, but we treat the fabric of our society, the family unit, as people who just need to buck up and do more hard work when they're already carrying a lot of this country. So quite frankly, we face polarization due to having such a stark difference in identity. Uh, the re- re- conservative Republicans tend to view things more so from a traditionalist kind of kind of sort. Their identity is tied into the same kind of cars they drive. They have a lot of kids. They, they come from an area with not a lot of job opportunities sometimes. And they see their 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 kids have to move into to cities where the the mindset there, where it's usually dominated by de- the Democratic Party, is uh, it's much different than the traditional rural lifestyle. And there's a lot more social openness on things. Cities, yeah, cities are completely different from the rural countryside, and in some states you have both. And you know, if you want to be really technical, nitty gritty, there is no blue state. Look at the map. There's not a single blue state. Maybe Rhode Island, but that's, there that's are, an exception. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Rhode Island is so small. Um, they're still important. Mm-hmm. There are blue cities. And those cities have so many people that the state turns blue. And this is not me knocking the Electoral College. It's a pretty smart thing because otherwise New York, Chicago, and L.A. will determine every election. And the rest of the U.S. will be pretty upset with that. So I, I like the college. It's a great idea. But there are, there, are, there are not blue states. There are blue cities, and then there are red states that are that way because they don't have giant cities. 
And the lifestyle is just completely different. I remember hearing an article um, in Michigan, up in the UP area, there was a town that was really struggling with some wolves. Uh, They wanted to change some of their gun right things and extend hunting season for something. Because of the bylaws of their state, they were not able to just do that. They had to put it up to a, a legislature vote within their state. Well, the people in Flint and the people in Detroit, they have no skin in that game, right? The wolves are not threatening them. Uh, if you've looked at a wolf, they're kind of cute from far away at the very least. We have wolf plushies. We have non-menacing artwork. We, they are a very dangerous animal that we don't see as dangerous unless we're right next to one. Well, no, I don't want the wolfies to get killed. No, they can't do that. Well, there's more people in those cities than there are people in that rural countryside. And so, lo and behold, it did not pass. They were not able to legally do that. So all that to your point of like, even from the the big city idea to the country to the suburb, everything in between, it's so completely different in every way. And I think part of the issue of seeing each other as a evil. The the guy in the farm knows he's providing food for the country. The guy in the city thinks that the milk just spawns at the grocery store. So there's not respect going both ways. The guy in the farm knows he's getting money. The guy in the city doesn't even know the farm matters. And that that may be a little simplistic and there's certainly problems on both sides, but there's there's a lot of naivete uh going one way which can explain one of the many problems between both but i mean you you know what is the saying if you're not a democrat when you're young you don't have a heart and if you're not a republican when you're old you don't have a brain well so you're either heartless or stupid either way um both both choices suck yeah we're not we don't even talk to each other very nicely consequently i don't have a heart apparently um but Maybe there's something else. We're all image bearers. Um, the person in the city just matters to God. The person in the suburb matters to God. Maybe, in fact, we can maybe even talk about this. I think this one rings more true. The Republican thinks the Democrat is ill-informed. The Democrat thinks the Republican's evil. Um, we can talk about morality all we want. We know the Bible is God's final authority and the word that he has revealed himself, what he desires for us to know. So the whole evil thing is maybe a little bit extreme. I don't think I'm evil if I believe or don't believe in global warming. But if you think that we have the tax dollars to throw at it, where Jordan Peterson, like him or hate him, brilliant man, said in an interview, I've read 200 books on the subject. I just don't think it's economically feasible well, that ignorance might be a problem there. So my actual, one of my solutions to polarization would be increased family unit culture and better education. Um, I, I struggle between a tight line, a tightrope of the humanist idea that people can achieve and the uh, biblical idea of Romans 3.23 amongst the rest of the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're evil. And we need our Lord and Savior to pull us out from that evilness to become alive and to be able to please him. But I believe that a person can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I want 
to believe that at least. Like, you want you, to believe in the ideals of this country. I, I do. And I, I think that I know from the Bible that without faith, you can't please God. So the unbeliever, that's a Hebrews, I believe it's 12. Um, but, uh, but even from Isaiah 66, your good deeds, you think you're pleasing me, person. Your good deeds are filthy rags. So before God, no, none of us does any good except for the believer. And that's only because of Jesus Christ. But civically, we can do good. A sinner can walk an old lady across the street, and that's civically good. Um, we may question some other things along it. The Bible tells us that's not pleasing to God because they're not a believer and they don't do it by faith. But civically, that was good. It's good that the police officer does their job for justice, even though it may not be. It may be a filthy rag to God. And so I believe I believe in that idea that you can pull yourself by your bootstraps that you can do good. And so I want to believe that all things being equal. If the American population, the voter population, was rightly informed on the issue, we would not have polarization. The Republican, who is too far to the right, though I do think that's few and far between and they actually don't even get to their elected points in the first place, they wouldn't – they would be thrown out as a nationalist who would be too extreme. Right? And I say that as someone who doesn't believe in globalism. But on the other end, the person in the Democratic Party, the person who's too far left who believes that there are billion genders and that two-year-old children should be able to have this or that surgery or whatever other thing you want to say about that side. That view also wouldn't get that – that person wouldn't get elected. AOC would not be elected if the people in her district were informed on the issues and had showed up and voted. Our problem is our candidates want to promise the world to us, promise systemic change within an election cycle. But the reality is that's just not the case. Our system is built on compromise. Our system is built on slow, gradual change, not revolution in four years' time. While that's possible, in reality, you don't want that. Revolutions are unstable. Revolutions cause chaos, destroy social institutions. And you may say, yeah, some of them should be destroyed. Chaos breeds instability. And in a country so divided, that instability, whatever stability we have is precious. And the and the system itself is a tapestry now with many threads weaving into it. So you pick a topic. Let's pick health care. Oh, well, health care should be a basic human right. No, it shouldn't. It should be taxed to this much. No, it shouldn't. Say anything you want about it, period, that either side would say. It's a complicated issue. And... Plucking away one bad thread leaves the rest of the tapestry falling apart because everything has become so complicated now. And it, uh, and again, it is a little naive to think that within your short time, your short term, you could make big changes like that to such a very difficult to understand issue that involves so many things. But I think that goes back to my earlier point. The individual voter who is aware of the issues, the complexity of the issues and has a understanding, at least a basic one, can also know, no, that's a bad plan that wouldn't work and the idea would fall flat. The person running on that still doesn't get there. But right now, the identity politics is uh, all over all the place. I mean, shoot, our latest Supreme Court justice was appointed because she was black and a woman. And that's Biden who said, that's what I'm looking for in a candidate, not me. 
I would like a Supreme Court justice to be an individual who is very good at interpreting the Constitution, since that's what their job is, not someone who sets uh, who meets a set of lists. I think meritocracy is the best thing. I think we get the best meritocracy by having good education. I think we get the best people for that education by having a good family unit. And so, you know, you talked about corporations want to legislate morality. So do our politicians. If you don't vote for the Green New Deal, you're probably a racist and a bigot and a otherist. Well, why can't my parents have taught me what's right and wrong? Why do you have to tell me as an adult right now that your deal is right and wrong? Yes. And on that factor, we we as Americans lack a framework for civic education. A lot of states don't mandate high school civic classes, and the one they, that they do is just another uh, required course they have to take. Uh, the amount of the amount of bureaucracy that goes into forming forming an educational course and getting it executed in the public schools is very, very challenging. Something that Illinois has done very well is Governor Bruce Rauner. Uh, he was around in uh, 2014, I believe. Um, he instituted a mandatory. Uh, civic education program for all high school sophomores in the state of Illinois. So you cannot graduate high school if you don't take a U.S. government classes where they explain to you how the legislative system functions, how a bill becomes law, the roles of the executive branch. And this was all going on when there was a lot of uh, questions uh, around uh, President Trump's uh, executive authority in the beginning of his term when he had a lot of uh, controversial executive action, such as the uh, restriction on Muslim immigration happening, uh, and all of those other things happening in that same year. So you had a pinnacle example of where civic education was important to understand the role of that our elective, elect, elected leaders have to play and the, and the bounds they have to, to be within. So the lack of education exasperates this, this polarization. Well, and I, I imagine your listeners could tell I am Republican-leaning. I would not associate myself with that party. I'm pretty upset with them conservative and liberal in the classical sense of like, just leave me alone. I liked a lot of what Trump did, but I don't like, I don't, I don't want either side when they have power to be able to do things unconstitutional that are against the very rules of how our society is supposed to work. And so again, like education, everyone knowing exactly what can be done keeps our leaders accountable. Um, and that's only a good thing, really. And, you know, as far as your civics thing, I mentioned earlier I was homeschooled. I didn't have a very good education when I was homeschooled. I blame myself on just laziness in that. I wouldn't say I became really politically active till 2016 when Trump ran. I remember being in our common room at the school, and it's like 11 at night, right? So the election's almost over. And I just hear them, uh, some of the guys in the room saying, like, what's going on? Like, well, Trump's in the lead. Are you kidding me? I didn't want Hillary, of course, but I didn't think Trump was a serious candidate. I was kind of head palming when he got the nomination. I thought, well, that was a throw. But he was in the lead. I wake up the next morning, Donald Trump won. I thought, how on earth did that happen? And, you know, prior to that, we had seen some odd articles of social justice stuff creeping into various things. And post that, we certainly started to see more and more of that in media doing scummy stuff. And that is what caused me to, I think, 
have to pay attention to politics. One, because like we said earlier, it's literally in everything now. So you don't get to be politically on an island. If you are, you're kind of burying your head in the sand or just choosing to not be aware. And and for two, we we should know what to think as believers uh, about this. And more questions are going to come up because if everything's political, that means we need to have a question about everything. And so I, I didn't have a civics class. I, you know, we all have more and more to learn, period. None of us quite makes it, but I, I feel like I had to start trying out of necessity, not out of because someone told me I had to learn it. Either would be great, though. And with that, we're going to learn together. We're going to grow together here. We have the rest of our lives as citizens of this country to participate in our assistance and not give up on the fundamental ideals that made this country of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, for liberty and justice for all, a more perfect union. Uh, it's still achievable within our lifetime. Hope is not lost yet. While our hope lies in the promise of the eternal kingdom and redemption of God through Jesus Christ, we are still representatives of him on this world. And as Christians, we should be a salt to the earth, salt to our society, preserving the fundamental good in it, and calling our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow countrymen, to be better, to a higher ideal. So how do we, how do we escape this worldview politics? Really, I don't know if the unbeliever can, truthfully. Um, I say that with a grain of salt. You know, listen to Stephen Crowder, um, and he, he talks about uh, various things. One of the reasons I, I listen to him is because he backs up everything he says with, well, here, they said this. And he's using uh, left-wing sources in his points when he's talking about, like, this, is, this isn't my words. I'm not misrepresenting them. This is what they said. Here's the sentence. Here's the context. And Stephen talks about, well, we can't find common ground. If at the very least you don't think one plus one equals two, if everything else we hold to differently, period, how can we meet in the middle on this? So for the unbeliever, I, I wonder if right now how they could. I, I think the unbelieving Republican will continue to think Democrats are stupid and the unbelieving Democrat will think Republicans are heartless and evil. That can change in a generation though, right? With the whole... Uh, family unit becoming better, with the family unit becoming better, with education being better, that can certainly change our, our elders model what how we should act to each other. So I, that that's probably the hope for the unbeliever. For the believer, for sure, though, we're all image bearers, right? Even those who are not saved, we're all created in God's image. And, you know, Jesus talks about you should pray for those who hate you. you uh, you're nice to those who are nice to you. Well, good job. Sinners do that even, but you should pray for your enemies and those who hate you. We were all enemies of God at one point. It's by grace that any of us come to faith. And so praying, praying for the political opposite, praying for any of our enemies, really, regardless of politics, forces us to acknowledge them before God. And prayer is always a realigning of ourself to God's will and God's vision. And so we should we should pray that, Lord, help me to see them the way you do. I hate them. I hate how they look. I hate how they dress. I hate what they're doing to this country. I hate blah, blah, blah. But you see an image bearer. You see someone who needs you just as much as I needed you before I came to faith. 
Help me to see that. Help me to love them. Help me to care for them. Help me to want them to know the gospel to come to you. And so I think as as believers, the, the whole, our understanding of salvation, our understanding of our faith and what we were before God, our hermodiology really helps us to be able to cross that divide and to plug you meet in the middle. Um, but other other than that, overall, outside of for believers, I think this is a generation thing that's just going to take some time to f- fix and correct. I think it really comes down to a good family unit, good education. And eventually, I wouldn't be surprised, Sam, if in your and my lifetime, a lot of these uh, news stations die out because everyone's starting to get sick of the lie and lie and lie over and over and over. It is possible to change it within one lifetime. We start Change is initiated on the individual unit between between individuals and that coalesces into into bigger units, families, communities. Uh, it's all a common shared culture thing. We're all called to create something better together. So there was this reporter out in Seattle. Her name is Monica Guzman. Uh, she's involved in organizations called Braver Angels. They advertise themselves as uh, marriage counseling for Republicans and Democrats. It's pretty cool. It's very, very cool. So this was this was a couple of years ago when the 2016 election happened. She ran a newsletter uh, talking to her audience, and after the 2016 election, she uh, approached the she approached the, uh, the loss of Hillary Clinton very personally, and asked her readers how they were doing. But she noticed a lot of res- a couple of responses from conservatives that they weren't necessarily not everybody was mourning the loss of her royal majesty. Uh, so. That led to an epiphany in her mind, and one thing led to another. She ended up reaching out to uh, an influential community member in a in, in a county that had uh, a similar level of uh, Republican support as her Democratic county did. So she gathered a lot of her her listeners and or readers and went over to that county for a whole day of dialogue and getting to know people who lived in a rural county that was just as right-leaning as hers was left. And that was a very transformational experience for that audience and the people there. They interacted with uh, people of different walks of life, getting to know them as common people, not just uh, angry racist Trump voters or uh, ideologically driven commissars of uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and there was, an, there was a moment that they were talking about uh, food, and this farmer gets up and says you even know how much work it took to make make that loaf of bread you're eating? And it led to a realization, one of the liberal audience members of realizing that we're all very interconnected. And there's more to us that is in common than we all share we all share the same the same body structure. We all share the same the same kind of uh, stuff that makes us who we are. We all have bones. We all breathe the same air. Uh, Our blood is all red. Our blood is all red. And through this intentional uh, creating of community, creating something good together, that's how we can we can change things. Of course, as believers, we're called to to something greater. But for those who are not saved, this is your trump card. This is how you turn down the thermostat. Yeah, that's a good point. My uh, Having a unheated conversation with the other side, period, regardless of which side you are on, will obviously help humanize them. The last thing we want is to see them as an other because that's that's how we got to uh, Germany, right? But we're, we're already kind of there. I believe it wasn't it Gina Carano who got 
fired from the Mandalorian for tweeting basically that like, hey, we shouldn't demonize the other side. And she didn't really make a political standing either way in that tweet. It was just simply a matter of we're all human, exactly what you said. My concern is, though, that within the generation that right here that is polarized, the farther left or the farther right you are, the less likely you are to see the other side. Because if you think about it, the further you are on the left, well, someone who's a moderate on the left will seem right. Because where does the split happen, right? Same for on the right. If you're an extremist on the right, when does someone become left? Well, anyone to the left of you is left, really. Same for the other way. And so I'm I'm skeptical if because a lot of it is emotionally charged on either side. When you get to that point, an almost fanaticism, you don't get there just logically. It has to be there has to be some emotional stake in that game. I don't I don't see people really wanting to come together with uh, someone at the maybe barely on their party, let alone people on the other end who are that far emotionally invested. Can it happen? Absolutely. Maybe this podcast is an example of that, though you and I don't really disagree a ton politically, but just as like a talking points meeting venue or just like, hey, I, I went to the coffee shop. I had a cup of coffee with a local Trump supporter. Turns out he's not an evil guy. Something like that. Certainly possible. Um, I'm just, I'm skeptical that someone who is so emotionally invested would respond to the other side that way. Because at that point, it's not logic that's driving you, it's emotion and uh, ideology. And the divide has been very large within the last few years. You can look online, Republicans have moved very little, though everyone moves to the left, truthfully. Uh, our grandparents, our conservative grandparents, are more conservative today than the who kept that, than the staunchest conservative today, young conservative, because everyone is constantly moving to the left. But the left, around 2016, Hillary starts using that um, identity politics to really kind of drive home things. And we just become more and more left. And I'm not qualified to really say everything or anything really about how that exactly boiled down. I would suspect it's partially because of the sensationalism from our media companies. Um, those people, those right-wing guys killed a bunch of people because they're, they're right-wing terrorists or on Fox News, you can hear the exact opposite. Uh, this this left-wing person had their kid do this and was a sex worker. And is that really like the right way to report the news that happened? Um, I think that's part of it. But also, uh, you know, we we our politicians have kind of become celebrities in a sense. Like AOC is an influencer, really. Uh, she's never passed a bill. She, she's uh, written a couple, but she's never really had anything go through. But she has merch. She has a large following of people outside of her district. And she's not she's not the only one. Uh, but we've sensationalized our politicians and made them uh, not really reality TV, but you kind of get what I'm what I'm saying there, but we, we've kept the divide between us. Pre-2014, uh, Biden would have said, we need a wall, and he did. Post-2015-16, Trump says we need a border wall, and the Democrats decide, why don't we just not be for this anymore? And so, you know, around 2010, you have a Democrat and a Republican. 
probably agree on 90% of things, maybe 95. Of course you can meet it down the aisle. What's 5%, right? But today, again, do we really agree on anything? Math is racist, according to one side. The other side says, how can it be? It's numbers. So the divide just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so how do you meet in the middle? Like you suggested, the talking with each other is good, but if we don't even know what the same words mean, what, what do we do? So I, th I think it takes a long time of a conversation. Um, if you can't have a conversation because you and I don't agree on what one word means, let alone whether the objective formulas of the universe, math, when done rightly, work, well, maybe you and I just hang out for a long time and I didn't kill you because we're a different skin color and you didn't try and transition me because of, or whatever, pick a stereotype. Pick a uh, ridiculousness from one side that apparently they do. Wow, we're both nice, decent people who happen to disagree on a couple things. That's a start. We're at least not the devil. So maybe if words don't work, maybe it's just more interaction. Pleasant, civil interaction. And maybe that's how we come in the middle. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Meet Me in the Middle. Tune in on October 21st for a brand new episode on family and culture. Also, the midterm election is coming up in November. Click on the link in the description or scan the QR code on the poster all over campus to learn how to register to vote in your state. It's extremely important. Alright then, well thank you so much and I hope you have a great rest of your day whenever and wherever you're listening. Until next time.